Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9 will be our text for this morning. I'd like to invite you, if you would, to pause and let's pray and thank Christ for his grace and his love towards us and ask for his help as we approach his word. God, we've sung this morning already of your glory. We've sung of the glory of Christ and what he has done in coming to earth to die and rise again to save sinners like us. Lord, it is such a comfort to know that we can trust you, that we can rely on you and depend on you, that your promise of salvation is sure, and that you are present with us through your spirit, that today you are among us. We thank you for that gift. We are encouraged and comforted by it, and we pray that as we worship you today, you'd be honored as we respond to your love by loving you in return. And God, as we come into your word now, I ask that you would help us to understand that you'd give us a tender heart to receive instruction, that you'd give us a, a desire to obey and to glorify you with our lives. So Lord, help me, help us as we listen. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are nearing the end of our study through the book of Colossians. And as we come down the home stretch, what you find in chapter 4 is very similar to what you find in many of Paul's letters, and that is this collection of personal remarks. We can sort of break up the rest of chapter 4 into a couple sections. Verses 7 through 9, what we'll be looking at this morning, we find an introduction of two men, and Paul commends them as he has sent them as messengers to this church. So he introduces Tychicus and Onesimus. Then in verses 10 through 14, Paul gives greetings. He sends greetings from his fellow laborers in Rome. Sort of one of those, hey, everybody who's here with me on my end wants to tell you hi. So he, he passes along those greetings. And then in verses 15 through 17, he gives special greeting to specific believers that were there in the church at Colossae. Paul's writing from Rome. He's writing to the church in Colossae, and he wants to make sure to greet several specific individuals to encourage them and greet them. And then finally, he ends in verse 18 with a personal benediction. He signs off, sort of puts his personal stamp on this letter. So some of you may be looking at this chapter specifically verses 2 through the end of the chapter. And you might be thinking, so where's the sermon in this text? What does this have to do with us? And I have to admit, to be honest, as a, as a pastor, as a preacher, I kind of enjoy texts like this. Um, I, I enjoy doing the genealogies in the Old Testaments, uh, the Old Testament. I, I enjoy the seemingly obscure quotations in the New Testament where One New Testament author is quoting some passage in the Old Testament that we may not be very familiar with. I I enjoy this because so often texts like this, for many of us, even if you've grown up in the church, it's sort of like untilled soil. We've not really done a lot of digging in, in passages like this. It's unexplored territory. And I believe what the scripture says about itself, that all scripture is inspired by God and that it is profitable It's useful, it's valuable for things like doctrine and reproof, instruction, correction and righteousness, so that we, as the people of God, might become mature and complete and equipped for every good work. That's a little bit of a paraphrase of Paul's letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16, what he says about Scripture. And so because I believe that, when we come to Colossians chapter 4, my assumption, and I hope yours as well, is that there is spiritual nourishment 
for us in texts like this, even in the greetings and the, you know, the, the, the instructions and the logistics and the things that are going on here. So we want to look with expectant hearts and expect to be taught by it. I believe that in Paul's introduction here in verses 7 through 9, that's all we'll look at this morning, I believe that his introduction of these two, of these two people, within this introduction, we see an example An example specifically of what happens when Christ is supreme. And that's the message of this letter. The message of this letter, which Carrie read from several times during our our worship earlier, is that Christ is supreme. He is the Son of God, the Creator, the Sustainer, the Savior, and He is all that we need. And when you believe that, when you really internalize that message, it's going to change your relationship with other people. What we see here is an example of what happens when Christ is supreme in our labor of ministry, how the gospel changes the way we relate to each other and how we engage in the world. If you look with me in verse 7, Paul introduces a man named Tychicus. He says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Who is this man named Tychicus? Tychicus was, in fact, the carrier of this letter. Paul is writing from prison in Rome, and he had written this letter and given it to Tychicus and sent Tychicus to this church at Colossae to deliver the mail. So Tychicus, thinking about this, had traveled all the way from Rome to Colossae. And if you're like me, you might not instantly have all the geography front and center in your mind. If you have a Bible, you can flip to the back and look at the map sometime if you want. But if you look there, you'll see that this man, Tychicus, had likely walked across Italy, traveling east. And then he had come to the Adriatic Sea. He would have had to cross that by ship. Then he would have had to walk across Macedonia, parts of modern-day Greece. Then he would have had to cross... Uh, the Aegean Sea, and then he would have had to walk across part of modern-day Turkey to finally get to the city of Colossae. So he had some miles on those sandals. And it was important to Paul that the believers at this church, at the Colossian church, receive this man. For not only was he bringing mail, he was also bringing a verbal report, as we see here in verse 7, And he was also going to commend this man to the church so that he could be received and honored because Paul wanted Tychicus to minister to them, to encourage them. So Paul gives us this three-part description of this man. And it gives us insight into their relationship. It gives us insight into how Paul viewed this man and how the gospel had changed him. Look at what he calls him, first of all. He says, Verse 7, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is, first of all, a beloved brother. A beloved brother. This shows us, first of all, that the gospel makes us family. The gospel makes us family. To call this man a beloved brother is both a statement about how Paul feels about this man. He has great affection for him. I love this guy. He is beloved to me. But it also points to the very essence of their relationship. Paul considers him to be family. He is a beloved brother. And you say, why is this a unique statement? Isn't Paul just being nice here? Isn't this just the kind of thing that believers say about each other? Because, I don't know, that's just what we do, right? Well, we have to realize here that Tychicus is a Gentile. It's not a Jewish name. He's a Gentile. And Paul was a Jew. Historically and culturally, there had been massive tensions between Jews and Gentiles. 
But Paul says, this is my brother from another mother, so to speak. He's like, yeah, I know we're not you know, flesh and blood, but this is my brother. We are family, and I love this man. Paul loves him because, first of all, Christ loves him. He saw Tychicus as someone for whom Jesus Christ himself had died. Paul loves this brother because this man loves Christ. The same Christ that Paul loved and served was the one that Tychicus loved and served. And so the implication here is that the Colossians should love him as well. That they too should embrace him as a brother. Because all who believe in Christ are adopted into God's family. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, To all who did receive him, speaking of Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What that means is that people aren't automatically children of God. I know it can be somewhat popular or common for people to refer to you know, human beings as you know, all of God's children. But the reality is that biblically speaking, it is those who believe who become children of God. We have this privilege of adoption, as we saw in chapter 1 of Colossians several months ago, if you remember. Part of our salvation includes this adoption. Paul wrote to us that we give thanks to the Father, verse 12, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. And who gets the inheritance? Only the kids. Only those who belong to the family. We have been made family. This is what the gospel does in us. We are adopted and made eligible for this inheritance, and we become brothers and sisters, therefore, in Christ. Let me ask you, how do you view your fellow believers? What's the primary way that you categorize people? Is the church your family? Do you have a heart that pulses with love for the family of God, a heart that is loyal to the body of Christ? Or are you someone who perhaps holds the church at arm's length? Maybe you're not really sure if you can trust the church and you sort of decline to engage at the level that many other people do. Friends, I must tell you that if the gospel has changed your heart, then it means you have a new family. It means that these are your people. And though we are at times admittedly an odd mix And every family will have its issues. We are a family. This is what Christ has accomplished in saving us, redeeming us, and adopting us into his family. So if this reality does not shape your attitude towards the church, then you haven't yet grasped the implications of the gospel for your life. Yes, if you've been saved, you are headed for eternity with Christ, and your sins have been forgiven individually, sort of personally, But you also must understand you've been placed into this new thing called the family of God. And therefore, you have a new identity, a new status. And it comes with it blessings and responsibilities. The gospel makes us family. Paul understood that, and so did Tychicus. And that's why these two people from different nations with different histories and different backgrounds and different languages could treat each other as brothers and have a relationship marked by love and affection. The gospel makes us family, but we can also learn from the second way that Paul describes Tychicus. Not only does he call him a beloved brother, but he also says he is a faithful minister, a faithful minister. So if the gospel, first of all, makes us family, the gospel, second of all, engages us in ministry. The word that's translated here is minister. 
is not like a, a job title. I know sometimes people will refer to someone who does what I do as you know, a reverend or a pastor or a minister as sort of job title. I like pastor. That's my favorite. I'm not so sure about reverend. Anyway, rabbit trail. Um, but the word here that Paul uses for minister is not a job title. It's descriptive of function. It's the same word we get the word deacon from, diakonos. So it's not a formal title, but rather describes what this person does, and it's specifically serving. A deacon is one who serves. Paul, when Paul calls Tychicus a faithful minister, he's saying this brother serves God, serves the church, serves and helps me faithfully. Ministry is service. If you want to be involved in ministry, it means you serve. You serve the Lord by serving his people. And when our lives are surrendered to Christ, get this, it not only changes what we are, it makes us family, but it also changes what we do. We serve, and we are to serve faithfully. Paul had been transformed from a persecutor of the church to a planter of churches, an opponent of the gospel to a proclaimer of the gospel. Tychicus had been changed from a Gentile, a pagan, who worshipped idols and knew nothing of the true God, to one who preached the gospel, who worshipped the one true God. And we are to be changed as well. If you believe in the gospel, then you are to follow Christ. And he tells us to go and make disciples. We are called to engage in the ministry God has given us. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul writes to that church that God has given apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors, and teachers to equip the saints, that's you, the believers, the church, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Do you see what Paul is saying there? That the church, each individual in the church is equipped by the people God has given so that they can do the work of the ministry. Ministry isn't my job. It's our job. That's what the Bible teaches us. This means, as my dad is fond of saying, that you have a ministry and your ministry matters. So Paul commends Tychicus as a minister. He's a beloved brother and he's a faithful minister. Not just any sort of minister, he is especially faithful. Paul brings this out. Why does he highlight the, the faithfulness of Tychicus? Well, Paul was in Rome but we need to understand that Tychicus wasn't from Rome. He was from the province of Asia and had joined up with Paul. If you go back and read the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, you'll find that this man joined Paul and his companions and traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys. So by this point, he had been with Paul for around four years. Paul had had plenty of time to evaluate this man's ministry, to see his character under fire, to see him tested, and to see him proven. Paul says that this man has been faithful in the ministry at every step. Faith in Christ ought to produce faithfulness to Christ. That's what we see in this man. And it should be evident in our lives as well. And Paul doesn't just say that he was faithful. I think if we step back, we'll realize that Paul put his money where his mouth was. He relied on this man because he knew he was faithful. You see, faithfulness earns trust, doesn't it? when you know someone can be counted on, when you know their character, when you know they will follow through, when you know they won't back down or drop the ball, then you trust them, don't you? You're willing to lean on them and rely on them. And Paul did. He first of all trusted him by sending this letter. 
And he trusted him to bring a verbal report to Colossae. Chapter 7 and 8 shows us that Paul didn't write to them, giving them an update on how he was doing. I think he was more concerned that they know how supreme Christ was. But he also didn't update them on how things were going in the church at Rome. He trusted Tychicus to give an accurate and faithful report. And not only would Tychicus give a report, but Paul also trusted this man to encourage the believers there. Look in verse 8. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, to give that update, and that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. He trusted this man to minister to the church, to come alongside them and provide the comfort and the strength that their faith needed. Paul was confident that he would be faithful to the truth. He would not deviate. He would not compromise. And he was confident that this man would be faithful in the work. He wouldn't be lazy. He wouldn't be fearful. He wouldn't be distracted. That he would meet their spiritual needs by encouraging them and comforting them. He knew that this brother was fully dedicated to the message of the gospel and the ministry of the gospel. He is a faithful minister, Paul says. In addition to to delivering this letter, Tychicus was also entrusted to deliver the letter of Philemon. Philemon was at this church, as we'll see here soon. It's another book in the New Testament. And it's likely that he also dropped off the letter to the Ephesians along the way. Ephesus would have been along his journey as he traveled to Colossae. So think about this. One man walking down the road with three books of the Bible in his pocket. The only copies that existed at that time. Paul trusted this brother, that he would deliver these letters, and that he would perform the work of the ministry when he got there. This wasn't the only time he trusted him. Uh, When Paul wished to have Timothy, the pastor at Ephesus, come and visit him, Tychicus was sent to temporarily fill in for him, to pinch hit in the pulpit, to shepherd that church and lead that church. And when Titus on the island of Crete needed someone to fill in for him, Tychicus was on the short list of men that Paul considered sending. We see that in Titus 3.12. I think you're seeing here, as we step back and get the big picture, that Paul trusted him not just to carry the mail, but also to carry the burden of shepherding multiple churches. He is a faithful brother, a faithful minister of the gospel. What a commendation to receive, to have that said about him. Matthew Henry years ago wrote, Faithfulness in anyone is truly lovely and renders him worthy of our affections and esteem. Let me ask you, when it comes to character, whether it be your own character or the character of someone else, What do you prioritize? What do you value? I think within the church, it's often tempting for us to to value dynamic personalities, you know, to to value perhaps um, uh, impressive gifts or those who have unique talents that, that seem to shine more than everyone else's. But the Bible seems to place the emphasis and the priority on faithfulness, on doing the right thing, the simple thing, the hard thing, again and again and again. Do we value faithfulness the way that Paul did, the way that Scripture does, the way that God does? It is essential to our walk. The life of faith is one of following Jesus, and it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. It is a long-distance journey. One author has memorably described the life of discipleship, the life of faith, as a long obedience in the same direction. And that kind of faithfulness is usually not flashy. 
It's not impressive. It's not glamorous. It happens behind the scenes. And it's not concerned with being recognized by anyone except God. The commendation that we work for, that we long to hear, is well done, good and faithful servant. And that is a decree that comes from the mouth of Christ, our Savior, when we reach the finished line. You know, the thing about faithfulness is that it's usually not noticeable until it's accumulated over a long period of time. You know, it's interesting, if you ever have been in a cave, maybe you've seen this, but if you ever go in a cave, sometimes you'll see these rock formations. There's these cone-looking things that are growing off the ceiling, and then there's a matching one on the bottom often that's growing up, and sometimes they keep going till they meet in the middle, and they form these pillars. The stalactites are on the ceiling, stalagmites are on the floor. And the way that happens is that when water drips in that cave, there's trace minerals in, in the water, little deposits of limestone or things like that. And over the years, as the decades go by, every drop leaves a tiny little deposit. And over time, you find these massive rock formations that are left where that water has been dripping, dripping, dripping. That's a lot like faithfulness. Doing the little things, the hard things, again and again and again. The gospel had taken root in the life of Tychicus, and his faith in Christ had produced faithfulness to Christ. And that's to have a mark on us as well. This letter wasn't written just so that we could go, wow, Tychicus must have been a great guy. No, this is supposed to shape our values, what we value in other people, what we praise and commend in other people, and also what we seek to cultivate in our own lives. The gospel makes us family, and the gospel engages us in ministry. We are to faithfully do the things that God has called us to do. But there's a third description Paul gives us of this brother. Verse 7, he's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and third, he calls him a fellow servant in the Lord. A fellow servant in the Lord. So the gospel makes us family. The gospel engages us in ministry. But third, the gospel unites us under Christ. The gospel unites us under Christ. Paul often describes himself as a slave of Christ in his letters. And here he tells us that Tychicus is just like him. The word fellow servant here is one word in the Greek language. The word for with and the word for slave or servant sort of smash together into this compound. He's a fellow servant, a fellow slave of Christ. And this refers, first of all, to what Tychicus is doing. Because he's not just helping Paul, helping him out by carrying his mail and giving a report for him and doing some things in the churches that Paul would have done if he wasn't in prison. Tychicus is not just serving Paul. More importantly, he's serving Christ. In reporting to the church and encouraging them in their faith, he is doing the Lord's work. When the gospel takes root in our lives, it joins us together as family, but also joins us together in faithfully doing the ministry that Christ calls us to do. We are submitted to him. And this not only describes what Tychicus is doing, but also tells us what Tychicus is. Consider, Paul is an apostle, and this guy, Tychicus, is not. In the hierarchy of the church, they're on different levels. But before Christ... They are on equal footing. See, that's what the gospel does. It humbles apostles and it elevates nobodies to where Paul and Tychicus are fellow servants of Christ. They're on equal footing, equal standing. Paul said the same thing about Epaphras, the man who had planted and shepherded this church back in chapter 1, verse 7. 
And what this tells us is that just like they're both serving Christ, it also tells us that neither of these men belongs to themselves. They both belong to Christ. There's a sense of ownership here. To be a slave of Christ means we belong to him. And for whatever reason, many of us today don't think this way, do we? Do you think of yourself as belonging to Christ? We often wrongly assume that our life is ours. We talk about our goals and our plans. We talk about our money and our time. But we are, biblically speaking, God's. We are his, first of all, by right of creation. He made us. Psalm 100, verse 3 says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So we belong to him because he made us. But secondly, we belong to him because he saved us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, You are not your own, for... You were bought with a price. Why are we not our own? Because we have been purchased. We are Christ's by virtue of the fact that he created us, and secondly, because of the fact that he has redeemed us. So this understanding of being servants of Christ, the reality of who we are and whose we are, it affected the relationship that Paul and Tychicus had with each other. Because they were fellow servants of Christ, they found common ground They had this deep bond. They found themselves engaged in seeking to accomplish the same things in the ministry of the gospel. So for Paul and Tychicus, it wasn't your ministry and my ministry. No. Paul knows that the ministry is Christ's, and they are simply his servants. There's no competition. There's no comparison. They may be assigned different roles and responsibilities by their master, yes, but they are on the same team. I think I've experienced this kind of fellowship with others in my life, and perhaps you have as well. But I've also seen the reverse. There's some people in this world that from an earthly perspective, you would think that, that we would be a perfect fit. We have a lot in common. Maybe we're in the same season of life. I've got four kids here who are mostly paying attention, listening right now. Um, I'm in my mid-30s. I enjoy outdoor activities, hunting and fishing. I like sports. I'm interested to see if the Chiefs win today. You know, those are all hobbies and interests and things like that. I enjoy music. And so there's some people that you would think, wow, we probably would get along well because we like all the same things and we're right in the same stage of life. But it's kind of weird when these other people are not living their lives fully surrendered to Christ and focused on serving him when they don't care about those things that are most important to me like that, you know, we might enjoy hanging out in sort of a small talk way, but it's hard to feel close to them. There's always this distance because we're just not on the same page, because our lives revolve around different things. And then on the other hand, there's some people in my life that an outsider might look and say, J.D., you don't have hardly anything in common with that person. You're not in the same stage of life. Uh, you, you don't even like the same things. Your personalities are very different. But one thing we have in common is a shared commitment to Christ. We are fully committed to serving him. And that creates, for me and, and, and others who share this, this almost instant bond, this deep kind of fellowship that you can't get anywhere else. And I think Paul and Tychicus had this. He said, we are fellow servants of Christ. Let me ask you, do you live your life as if it's your life to live? 
Or do you see yourself as belonging to Christ? And are you fully submitted to serving him? Because you ought to be. And here's what will happen. If you see yourself, if you see your time, your money, your talents, your future, all of you as belonging to Christ, and if you will give yourself to serving him with all your heart, then what you will find yourself experiencing is this amazing blessing of a deep camaraderie with other people who feel the same way. This is a rabbit trail I won't get into, but an amazing cure for loneliness in the church is to share in the ministry together. The gospel makes us family. The gospel engages us in ministry. The gospel unites us under Christ. It brings us together under Christ. There's a fourth point I want to share with you this morning, a fourth way that the gospel changes relationships. Fourthly, we find this in verse 9. The gospel heals broken relationships. At this point, we'll move on from Tychicus and see that Paul introduces another man. In verse 9, he says, And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Now, when this man, Onesimus, showed up in Colossae, it likely would have been a huge shock for the church. So when he is commended here by Paul and given this Pauline stamp of approval, that would have been an even greater shock. And you say, well, why is that? Well, we need to understand that there is a big backstory here behind this name Onesimus. Onesimus is coming with Tychicus from Rome. So he had been there with Paul. Paul knew him. But this is not his first time in Colossae. In fact, this was where Tychicus was originally from. This is his hometown, or Onesimus, rather. This is where Onesimus was from. And his return to his hometown would have been potentially, for him, very embarrassing and perhaps even difficult because of his past. So Paul's commendation of Onesimus becomes very, very important. It's going to help him sort of re-enter this community. Why is that? Well, because Onesimus had a broken relationship with a prominent member of this church. Do any of you have any burnt bridges in your life? You know, I, I'll tell this story very briefly. I won't use any names. But I was sitting with someone once in a restaurant, um, not someone who's part of this church, but they were telling me about um, some, some hard things that had happened at their previous church, some fallout that had happened with leaders in that church. And there was still hurt there and still anger there. And as he's telling me about this, we're sitting in a barbecue restaurant, um, two or three of the pastors of that church walked into the restaurant. And this man I was sitting with actually stood up and ran out the door. He said, I'm really sorry, but I've got to go. I'm not ready for that conversation yet. So I'm left there with two plates and some leftover barbecue. And, and I think some of you, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to criticize or make fun of this brother. Some of you, if you were in a restaurant, perhaps there's that one person that if they were to walk in, you'd be looking for the exit as well. Because it's painful. There's broken relationships. There's fences that are not yet mended. That was Onesimus' experience. To show back up in this church would have been perhaps very difficult for him. You see, Onesimus was a former slave of a prominent member of this church, a man named Philemon. The book of Philemon in the New Testament, another letter that Tychicus would have been delivering that day, is a letter that was addressed to this individual. 
We don't have time to talk about slaves and masters and the unique dynamic of that society today. If you're interested in that and a little confused, you can go back a couple weeks on our website. We actually address this issue at the end of chapter 3. Paul gave instructions for believing slaves and masters and how they were, were to relate to each other. But now he has a real-life scenario where these things need to play out because Onesimus and Philemon had a broken relationship. So how does Paul describe Onesimus? Well, just like Tychicus, if you look in verse 9, he calls him a brother. With him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. Now, this is not how they knew Onesimus, because he formerly, when he had been there in Colossae, he was not a believer. He had not believed in Christ had not been changed by the gospel. He was lost. He was unsaved. And he had been, so therefore, not a brother previously, and he had been anything but faithful. He had deserted his master, breaking his word, perhaps violating a contract, and even, Paul indicates in the book of Philemon, perhaps stealing from his master on his way out the door. So he had broken a contract and ripped him off and then scooted out of town. But Paul says that something has changed because he's now a faithful and beloved brother. If you go and read the small book of Philemon, it's one short chapter, you'll find that Onesimus had fled to Rome, and there he had met a man named Paul. And from Paul, he had heard the gospel, and he had become converted. Paul says that he became his father in the faith during his imprisonment. So if anyone doubted Onesimus' story, that he was a different man now, and that he was now a true believer, he now had the endorsement of Paul himself to back up that claim. And Paul says Onesimus can tell them in verse 9, everything that has happened here. And I think he means Onesimus will tell you not just how I'm doing, he's also going to tell you his story. He's going to tell you about how God has changed him. And now he's a brother, and he's even changed his character, where he's become a faithful brother. In presenting Onesimus as a faithful brother, Paul's seeking to show three things. Number one, that this man has been reconciled to God through faith in Christ. So that's changed. Number two, he's therefore to be received in the Colossian church as a brother. And number three, he needs to be restored relationally with Philemon, his former master. Although Onesimus had a past, his life had been changed. And Paul is sending him back so that he can reconcile with those whom he has sinned against, therefore mending those broken relationships. The return of Onesimus shows us that the gospel helps to restore relationships in two ways. Number one, those who have sinned are compelled and moved to confess their sin. Onesimus had a job to do. He had to return to Colossae, and he needed to confess his sin against Philemon. And it was because he was submitted to Christ, he was willing to do this. But secondly, those who are sinned against have a responsibility to forgive So Philemon, as someone who had been forgiven of his sin, had an obligation and a duty to extend forgiveness to Onesimus and to not hold his previous sins against him. And I think it's interesting that this little note about Onesimus comes at the end of the letter, not the beginning. It comes after Paul has taught them about spiritual equality in Christ. In chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, notice what's next, slave-free. But Christ is all and in all. 
This instruction of, of, or this commendation of Onesimus comes after Paul has taught them about the necessity of forgiving and forbearing. In chapter 3, verse 13, he says that we are to bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And this instruction comes after Paul's explained the duties of believing slaves and masters at the end of chapter 3, going into chapter 4, verse 1. So now Paul says, oh, and by the way, here's Onesimus. And you all should know what to do. You all should know what to do. This would be a test case of sorts, a very public and visible example of the kind of relational reconciliation that the gospel brings. By introducing him to the church publicly, Paul was vouching for his changed character, vouching for the validity of his faith, and he was, in a sense, applying a little bit of public peer pressure on Philemon. You know, he he does write this letter to Philemon, but he also tells the whole church, hey, everybody, here's Onesimus, and here's how you should forgive, here's how we're all equal, and here's how relationships should work. So now the whole church would have looked, you know, down the pew, I don't think they had pews, at Philemon to go, oh, okay, so that's what you're going to do. And Philemon would have gone, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, So Paul is definitely shepherding the church and, and seeking to promote relational reconciliation because of what Jesus had done in the life of Onesimus and because of what Jesus had done in the life of Philemon, bringing them together. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Isn't that an encouraging truth? You know, a lot of us have a past, don't we? We have things about us, our own failures, other people's sin against us that we are ashamed of. But when the gospel takes root in a person's life, we were made new. The old things are passed away and all things become new. Onesimus was to leave his shame and his old life behind. He was a new man. And his past failures were not to keep him from fellowship with the church. They were not to keep him from reconciliation with Philemon. The church and Philemon were to also consider that his past was in the past, that he was forgiven by God. They were to not hold anything against this brother, but were to receive him back. And this is the same impact the gospel is to have in our church, in our relationships. It moves us to freely confess our sin. The reason some of you have broken relationships is because you're unwilling to say, I was wrong and I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? But it also moves us to extend forgiveness to others. The reason that some of us have difficult and broken relationships is because we're not willing to say, I forgive you. And then to walk in forgiveness and not hold that offense over someone else's head. And it is admittedly difficult. There can be great pain and it takes time to rebuild trust. But forgiveness is our duty. So are you willing to confess your sin? Are you willing to forgive other people? Because this is the impact the gospel is to have on relationships in the church. The gospel brings reconciliation not just vertically with God but also horizontally with others. Some of you might be listening to all of this here today. You might say, man, a lot of this just sounds so foreign to me. And it sounds impossible. Maybe you've never known what it's like to be part of a spiritual family. To belong to a group of people like this. 
Maybe you can't imagine having this kind of bond with others who are not like you, who have a different background and a different kind of life, but who are joined together in serving Christ. Maybe you can't imagine thinking of yourself as belonging to Christ. Maybe you can't imagine what life would look like if you were to surrender yourself to serving him and not serving yourself. Maybe you can't possibly imagine that your past could actually be put behind you and that you could become a new person and get a completely fresh start. But friends, it is possible. And it's not just possible, it's actually happening all around you. And this can be for you, not, not because you jump through certain hoops, not because you sort of grab yourself by your bootstraps and lift yourself up and turn your life around and flip over a new leaf, not because you be baptized in our church or even become a member of a church. None of those things bring that sort of change. It all starts when you come to Christ. When you understand the message of the gospel, that you are a sinful person, but a holy God has sent his son to pay your debt on the cross, and that through faith in him, you can be forgiven, cleansed, made new, added to the family, given new purpose, and enjoy what you see here happening as far as relational reconciliation with other believers. It all starts when you come to Christ, when he performs his work in your heart and makes you new. Everything we've talked about today, it all depends on Jesus. We mentioned John chapter 1 earlier. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you've not yet received Christ as your Lord and as your Savior and believed in him, I want to invite you today to do so. When Christ is supreme... The gospel will change the way we relate to each other and the way that we engage in the world. So as those who have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, church, let's treat each other like family. Let's labor together in the ministry. Let's seek to be faithful in serving Christ. We are united under him. Let's submit ourselves fully to his authority. Let's confess our sin and forgive each other and rejoice in all that Christ is accomplishing in his church and for his glory. God, as we read your word, we are encouraged and, and amazed to see what you did in that early church there in Colossae, the way you changed people, the way you accomplished your purposes through faithful servants. And Lord, I'm amazed by what you're doing in this church as well. I thank you, God, for how you've saved sinners. I thank you for the faithful brothers and sisters who serve here. I praise you, God, for how you've used many in this church to make this body a strong and healthy body. I thank you, God, for the many things that are done behind the scenes, for those who have been so faithful. Lord, we commend them and praise you for what you've done in them to make them so faithful, and we are blessed and thankful to have them here in our body. I'm thankful as a pastor to be surrounded by faithful brothers and sisters. And God, I pray that you would grow us in this area, that we as a church would value faithfulness in one another's lives, that we would pursue it in our own hearts. I pray, God, that we would love one another as family, that we would be quick to confess our sin and quick to forgive others. And I pray, Lord, that we would faithfully submit ourselves to your authority, doing the things you've called us to do, doing the work of the ministry. 
Lord, we recognize that it's only possible because of Christ. It's only possible by the power of his Holy Spirit. We bring very little to the table. We are weak and we are small, but Lord Jesus, you are great. Your gospel is powerful. Your plans are big. And your promise to use us is good and sure. And Lord, my heart is heavy for some in the room who may not yet belong to this family, who have not yet been changed by the gospel. I pray that today they would realize their need for salvation, that they would hear this good news that Christ loves them and died for them. And I pray that they would repent of their sin and believe, fully surrendering, submitting their hearts to you so that they can join us in serving you and seeing your plans furthered in this world. We pray all this, Jesus, in your high and mighty name. Amen.